that's why we think it's so important sometimes to sit back and ask that why question and really understand like what levers equity and the different types of equity compensation are pulling. In this episode, we'll talk about stock option plans for startups. We have with us two expert attorneys from Foley and Laudner, Casey Knapp and Andre Thollier, to talk about the ins and outs of creating a stock option plan and how to optimize it for your employees. For many startup ventures, this is a key part of recruiting and retaining top talent. I'm Brett Waters. I've been in Silicon Valley my entire life, immersed in the world of entrepreneurship, innovation, and venture capital. I run a startup accelerator program named Fourthly. This is the Fourthly Podcast. So here to discuss this topic with me are two expert attorneys from Foley and Laudner, starting with uh, Casey Knapp. Hey, Brett. Nice to see you. See you. So tell us a little bit about your background. So as Brett said, my name is Casey Knapp. I'm a partner in Foley's executive compensation and employee benefits practice. I've been doing this for about 15 years, and my practice spans all sorts of companies from Fortune 25 companies, but I spend a lot of my time working with high-growth startups. Awesome. Welcome. And also here with us is Andre. Hey, Andre. Hey, Brett. Yeah, my name is Andre Chillier. I'm a corporate partner here at Foley. Also been doing this for about 15 years here in the Valley for 10 now, primarily working with startups. We have a model of garage to global, so from their formation until they exited in some fashion, um, M&A or IPO and everything in between. So stock options, obviously, Casey is the, the real expert here on the corporate side, also deal on a day-to-day with more mundane and, and uh, uh, standard questions that we get from our clients. Awesome. Casey and Andre, so uh, let's, let's say I've got a startup. It's pretty early stage. I've raised a little bit of seed funding. Uh, expect to raise a more significant equity round of funding um, in the next 12 months or so. And I'm starting to talk to some key team members about hiring. And, you know, as I, as I look to recruit and retain top talent, one of the questions I get from prospective employees is, do you have a stock option plan? And what do I get in the way of equity grants and stuff? So maybe we could start, um, Casey, with just, you know, as an early stage startup founder, planning to create a stock option plan at some point, what's the best timing and what are the steps to doing that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So such a lawyer answer, (laughs) but I think some of this gets down to it depends. And this is not a one size fits all situation. Um, When I sit down with companies that are first adopting, adopting an equity incentive plan, we do a lot of who, what, when, where, why type of questions. So, Brett, you addressed the primary answer to the why, and it's because your employees or your executives have started to ask, you know, do you have an, do you have options? Or your recruits, you go out to the market and they say, well, will I get options? And a lot of founders want to be able to say yes. And in my opinion, that's a perfectly reasonable answer for why you want to do this and even why you want to do it in an earlier stage than, say, you know, after your series A round. And there are pros and cons to that as well. Um, Then the next question is what? Everyone is really familiar with options. You know, people throw around that word all the time. Options. I want options. I have options. Um, And the world of equity and compensation is actually a lot more nuanced than that. So even if we end up with some form of option in the end, I do like to sit down with founders um, or even investors and talk through, you know, what 
what does the landscape look like? Mm -hmm. You know, what are my other options, so to speak, mm -hmm. in terms of equity compensation? Mm -hmm. um, there are, in fact, two different types of options. There are ISOs or incentive stock options, um, and what sometimes we call non-qualified options or NSOs. So we talk through that. Um, sometimes we'll talk about restricted stock. If it's an LLC, we'll talk about profits interests, um, even phantom stock sometimes, depending on the situation. Um, we talk about timing and the who and the what, you know, the size of your option pool and who you want to be able to get the options and where they are. Are they in the United States? Are they international? So like very quickly, right, this conversation starts from like, hey, I want to give this guy some options to like, great, but like, let's take a step back and look at the bigger picture and see, you know, what you need now and what you think you might need in, in the near future, because we do like to try to put that bigger picture plan in place. Sure. So Casey, maybe you could just really briefly expand on the, the definitions of ISOs and NSOs, because that's a, I know that's a point that people get really confused about quickly. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So basically, um, from a very high level, they're both options, which is essentially the right to buy stock of the company, usually in the future, for the company's current, the, the stock's current value, right? And so both ISOs and NSOs work that way. Um, ISOs, if administered correctly, tend to be better for the employees. They can, they can provide better and more tax advantageous treatments for employees. Okay. Um, and NSOs technically arguably are better for the company because they more often result in like a compensation tax deduction. Let's, let's take an example, right? So you have a, you have an option, you're granted your option. Let's say today's stock price is a dollar. And then you want to, you, you say, I'm going to exercise this stock in two years, right? So you hold your option for two years. You exercise that option when the stock's price has appreciated to five dollars. Mm -hmm. If that is an NSO, you are paying income tax on the spread, which is the difference between the exercise price and that price at the time you exercise. Whereas if it's an ISO, you don't have to pay tax on the spread immediately. So that's a pretty big, from a tax standpoint, that's a pretty big difference. It is a huge difference, right? And that's why people love ISOs because it sounds so great. The problem is once you exercise those options, those ISOs, you have to then continue to hold the stock for a whole nother year at least in order to get those tax benefits or it's what's called a disqualifying disposition. And the reason that that happens, honestly, fairly rarely is because most people just hold their options until they either terminate employment or there's an exit and there's a change of control. And then both of those points, again, generally speaking, the stock is almost immediately bought back, <laughs> either by the company or in connection with the transaction. Mm -hmm. So unless someone's being really strategic about how and when they're exercising their ISOs and they really understand how ISOs work, you very quickly sort of lose that tax advantage. And I think if I recall correctly, my experience with this is usually that uh, contractors and consultants are getting one type and employees are getting the other type. Is that accurate? Yeah, yeah that's exactly right. So okay. ISOs, because there is potentially such a huge tax benefit, the IRS regulates them very strictly. So they have different requirements around fair market value, a number of other things. One of those requirements is that only employees may be granted ISOs. 
So you're actually not even permitted under the U.S. tax code to grant contractors. I Got it. Mm -hmm. Got it. So that's a pretty big, pretty big yep. distinction to understand. Great. Great. And uh, Andre, I want to make sure we get you in on this. You've got a lot of experience working with uh, with startups in Silicon Valley. So anything you want to add to this so far? Uh, yeah, I mean, um, I think uh, on the question on the when, uh, it's it's a question that we always get. And, mm -hmm. and one thing for entrepreneurs to bear in mind is that if you're financing your company using your standard Y Combinator safe, mm -hmm. um, there are a few things there that... Uh, that you have to be worried about. And we can talk about the size of the pool uh, later uh, in what is typical market that we see. But yeah. one thing that is sort of also technical that sometimes entrepreneurs lose sight of is that they sometimes you get entrepreneurs that think that because they have promised options and those options have not yet been issued, meaning you don't have a plan, mm -hmm. that um, uh, every single current investor, meaning every single safe holder that they have is being diluted also when you actually create the plan to account for those options that you promised before. So a lot of them, when they're managing their cap table, they think it that way. And then when you actually go to look at the, the Y Combinator safe, which most of the companies here in Silicon Valley use, right? Promised options are things that are calculated uh, pre-money and therefore are only, and are only diluting um, the actual founders and not the actual existing safe holders, right? It's not, it's only if you have to potentially increase the option pool to account for more options that those safe holders will get that. So a lot of clients we have, they're doing their, their cap table and they come in, oh, but I have, I, I hired a CFO very early on or another engineer very early on and I promised him, I don't know, 5% of the company. I'm like, great. But everyone's getting diluted on that, right? No. Um, that is something to bear in mind as to the when uh, uh, to put in place uh, that yeah. option plan. Yeah. So I think the key thing here is to you know, be aware of the fact that when you create a stock option plan, there's dilution that happens, right? Because we're creating, you know, a new bunch of new pool of stock. And so, so everybody else is going to get diluted a little bit. And so it's important to kind of think through how you want to optimize, optimize that. The investors of the phone, for example, would always want you to wait, of course. Yeah, right. So, the, you know, this may be an oversimplification, but the way I think of it is that the, you know, if there's a, a big equity round of financing coming up, that from the entrepreneur's perspective, you'd rather create the option pool afterwards. And that way, everybody's getting diluted a little bit, including the new investors, mm -hmm. whereas the new investors would rather the option pool be created before their money goes in. And that way everybody gets diluted, but they don't. Is that a, a you know, correct? correct That's term? What yeah. Yeah. Whoever's already in there is going to get yeah. diluted. Right, yeah. right. Right. Um, um, and then the, the amount of dilution is going to depend on what the safe says or the convertible note says at that right. time, right. if that was how the company got financed before the equity round, which typically is the case. Right. So let's talk a little bit about the size, a typical size of an option pool. So I think, I think in my experience, early stage, it's around 20%. Is that accurate? Or is there an update on that? Yeah, I, I think, I don't know, Casey, if you want to take this one. Uh, I typically see between sort of 10 and 20 10, being 20, okay. the market, uh, anything lower than that, you're, you're sort of, you can use it, but chances are you're going to have to increase it at the time of your equity round. Yeah. And this is it's typically stage dependent though, right? That the earlier stage, you might carve out a larger option pool, later stage, less so. Is that true or not? Well, to me, it's always a dynamic of how much uh, uh, cash the company wants to save yeah. to be able okay. to retain talent, right? That's okay. the whole 
the main sort of driver of, of options is to reach. So on an earlier stage, it, it sort of makes sense because they want to use cash for other things, not necessarily just hiring people. So, and you have this promise of, oh, you're getting you employee or consultant or contractor, you're getting, you're getting in very early. So you have a higher risk, but on the flip side, you're getting more equity in the company at a very lower value because it's very early stage. Right. Now, when you're getting to more mature companies, then sometimes the company has more cash, right? It has already a business that is flowing through and then you can mm -hmm. sort of be able to calibrate the comp of people that you want to incentivize a little bit better. So you might not need a, such a larger pool. But on the flip side, you have more employees or you might be able to hire more people as well. So. And then let's talk about entity type. So if you are venture funded, you are almost certainly a C Corp, a Delaware C Corp, but other kinds of companies might be an S Corp, there might be an LLC. And I used to think that it wasn't possible to have a stock option plan with an LLC because there are no actual shares of stock in an LLC. But from what I've heard, there's, there's, there's kind of a creative way of handling this, Casey. Yeah, absolutely. So you do see more option plans in C-Corps um, for a variety of reasons, but there's nothing, at least in Foley's opinion, that would prevent an LLC from implementing an equity incentive plan. Um, it would just be an option to buy units of the LLC, essentially a partnership interest, as opposed to stock or corporate interest. There, it gets very complicated quickly in an LLC from a tax perspective. Mm -hmm. um, because it can also implicate state tax filing obligations, whether or not the employee has to also pay estimated taxes, can still receive W-2. So if you have an LLC and are thinking about this, we would highly recommend that you do consult more sophisticated tax counsel. Mm -hmm. One of the cool things about an LLC is you can use something called profits interests, um, which are not available for C-Corps. Um, and they sort of they're sort of a hybrid between restricted stock and options. So they give you, generally speaking, you're more likely to get capital gains on the appreciation. But again, there are some complicated tax issues. So pros and cons, like all things, I guess. Yeah. So uh, speaking of tax issues, uh, we've got a question coming in here from, uh, from Samil about uh, 409A valuations. What the heck is that, Casey? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's a great question. We'll, we'll definitely get to it. But let's go over quickly what a 409A evaluation is. So this this always makes me laugh because everybody, I call them 409A evaluations. They're actually valuations that most companies go out to get to establish the fair market value of their common stock in it before issuing options in order to be exempt from a really nasty provision of the Internal Revenue Code called Section 409A. So like the tax lawyer in, it, in me just wants to call them like 409A uh, exempt valuations. Uh, <laughs> but that's what know, they do. I didn't yeah. know that. That's good to know. Yeah. yeah. And the reason, again, the reason we do this is because there's a safe harbor in the Internal Revenue Code um, that provides both for NSOs and for ISOs that um, as long as you're issuing stock um, at no less than the fair market value of the common stock, you know, the exercise is no less than the then current fair market value, then those options are exempt from Section 409A. It's all, there's also a separate ISO requirement that ISOs must be issued at the current fair market value um, or potentially 110% if you're a 10% shareholder. So that's a little ISO gotcha. 
But what companies do in order to make sure that they're being safe under this requirement and not messing around with 409A, we can talk about consequences if you guys want, but um, is they go out and they get an independent valuation. And the IRS has said, if you go out and you get an independent valuation, that is deemed to be a reasonable valuation of your stock. Um, and so you can always provide it as proof, for example, to the IRS, or if you're going through a financing round or a potential change of control to anyone conducting due diligence, mm -hmm. that your stock has been or that your options have been issued with exercise prices that are compliant. And so the actual question is, once I get that 409A valuation, do I have an obligation to provide that to any employee who asks? The answer is no, not to my knowledge. Andre, jump in if, if you want to correct me. There's nothing in the securities law rules um, necessarily, especially for smaller companies. And there's nothing in any other rules, the tax code or anything that would require you to provide the employees with the actual underlying valuation. So from the employee's perspective, you want the strike price to be as low as possible, right? Because I want to be able to, you know, when I exercise my options, I want to be able to, you know, buy stock for a nickel that's worth 10 bucks. Right. But if you, if, if you set the strike price too low, then the IRS says the stock's really worth 10 bucks. You just gave them the option to buy it for $1.00. Therefore, you handed them $9 in value for every share of stock. And so that's taxable. And so that's the reason why you need to base the strike price in something that a third party came up with. Yeah, and it's even worse than that, Brett. So not only with... Not only <laughs> it's even worse than that. <laughs> I'm like the doomsday tax lawyer, right? So what the IRS views that as is actually deferred compensation. Mm, mm. And after Enron, the IRS put all these rules in around deferred compensation, which essentially is you have a right in one taxable year to receive compensation in a future taxable year, right? And when that happens, when you have true deferred compensation, the IRS essentially restricts when that can happen. So you have to say, like, it happens in year five, or it happens only when you terminate employment or separate from service. So the nature of an option, the fact that you have essentially the optionality to get this comp, whatever you want, automatically violates 409A. So not only are you taxable on that spread, you're also subject to an additional 20% income tax on that value in the year that it vests and every year thereafter until you fix it. So it is like, it is bad. Like you do not want this to happen, which is why so many people just go out and say, I'm not messing with this. I'm not gonna value the stock myself. I'm just gonna get a 409A valuation right. and feel safe about it. Right. And, and for the company, and Casey, keep me honest here, it also generates, because it's income, it generates a withholding obligation. And then in most cases, when the company is being sold, this is something that buyers don't like because they're going to look at it and going to say, listen, you have a tax liability here. I'm either going to deduct from the purchase price or I'm going to put it in escrow until the problem is resolved. So a lot of people just say, oh, okay, it's a problem that the employee or contract is going to have, but it actually generates a problem on the, on the company itself absolutely. that can become a huge, huge price deduction when you're trying to sell it. Yeah, absolutely. They've You've essentially caused yourself a reporting and withholding violation because yeah. th this income has been generating that you haven't been reporting to the IRS. Exactly right. So the big takeaway here for our audience is you want to create a stock option plan with a very attractive strike price for your employees so that it looks great to them that they were able to buy this stock cheap. But you want to cover your butt by having an outside party do a what's called a 409A valuation so that 
that strike price has been kind of determined by somebody else as being a reasonable value. And the good news for those of you who use Carta, which is a pretty common uh, application these days to use for your cap tables, Carta, I believe, has kind of built in, uh, they'll connect you with outside parties that'll do your 409A valuation for you at a remarkably attractive price. So I think it's a whole lot easier today than it once was. Yeah, it's so much easier. Um, and I and I would have just, yeah, I'd recommend doing it. That's why I tell all my startup clients, just do it. Again, to be a technical tax lawyer, it's not the only way that you can satisfy that IRS exemption, but it is a way that you know you're going to be safe. And it's so easy now that we just generally say, like, just do it. Yeah. Okay, so let's talk about vesting. So most stock option plans have a vesting schedule, meaning that I'm going to give you 10,000 shares, options on 10,000 shares of stock, but you have to stay with the company for X number of years in order to actually get them. The Silicon Valley standard has uh, typically been a four-year vesting with a one-year cliff, although I've, I've increasingly seen five-year with a one-year cliff. And what that means is that you have to stay there for, let's stick with the four-year one. If it's a four-year vesting schedule with a one-year cliff, that means you have to stay there for four years to get all of the stock that you've been promised, the options that all the stock you've been promised. Um, the one-year cliff means you have to stay with the company for a year before you get anything. If you leave in less than a year, you get nothing. And then after that year, you accrue 148th every month. So I guess A, is that, correct in terms of what you guys see in terms of standard these days? And then B, any additional color on this or thoughts on this? I don't know, Andre. I don't know about you. That's definitely still what I'm seeing now. Um, then the only thing, the next question then um, it would be, you know, when does that vesting accelerate? When does it accelerate? Right, right. Mm -hmm. So uh, often there's a double trigger, meaning that if there's change of control, the company gets bought and you get your ass fired for no cause, then you get the acceleration and you're fully vested. That's at least an example of acceleration. What are the other examples or thoughts, Casey? Yeah, absolutely. So you're right, double trigger. Um, I'd say that's a compromise between the company and the employee. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes employees will ask for what is called single trigger vesting, which is if a change of control happens, they become vested regardless of if they keep their job or not. Yeah. Essentially, an employee will come to you and say, hey, the point of this was for me to help get to an exit. And so I think I should be rewarded then. And then I want to be treated like a shareholder in connection with the transaction with respect to all of the shares that were awarded to me. And then there are some termination related acceleration provisions that some um, employees will ask for. So say in your example, I have to be at the company for four years in order to get my full vested option. Um, if you fire me without cause during that four year period, I want you to fully vest me. Um, or if I quit for good reason, so essentially what, what we think of sometimes as a constructive termination, I want to be fully vested. None of that is governed by the tax rules. Um, from a tax law perspective, you can choose to have different designs for different employees um, or executives versus employees. You can reserve the discretion to make those decisions when someone terminates. The one thing to keep in mind, this is another ISO um, issue, is that there's an, there's an ISO rule that only $100,000 of ISOs that vest per year, the vest per year can be considered ISOs. So say you were granted an award that at the time of grant was worth $400,000 and invested over four years. 
in the normal course, you have $100,000. It's vesting each year. It's beautiful. They can all be treated as ISOs. If for whatever reason, half of that is accelerated into year three, then only a portion of that will be able to be treated as an ISO. And then any excess would have to be treated as an NSO. So that's something to keep in mind when you're thinking about accelerating options. A couple of other things to keep in mind is that obviously the vesting helps the entrepreneur not to get overly diluted, meaning if someone leaves, right, right. the unvested options go back to the option pool. So therefore the company can reissue that to someone else without having to create a, 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 a a larger dilution among the current security holders. The other thing to bear in mind is on the single trigger and double trigger is if you think about it, when a buyer is buying a company and he needs to make sure that the team is incentivized, right? Typically the buyer will come in with a retention package for the key players. If you put everyone, if the company put everyone with a single trigger, meaning that all their options vested at the time of the change of control and they can cash out, that deal just became a little bit more expensive for the buyer because either they're going to factor into the price they're going to have to get a new comp package to the key key players right or um they're going to have to create their own and therefore spend more money giving equity on their own company the buyer's company if there's a rollover or some other type of dynamic so if you are an entrepreneur and you're giving single triggers to everyone chances are you're going to have a discussion with a potential company that's trying to buy you on how to figure that out so in most cases, the tendency tends to be, one, don't put any acceleration because that's better for the company in terms of you're not accelerating anyone, obviously. But if you have to have a discussion about accelerations, think really hard who you're giving single triggers and who you're giving double triggers to. Yeah, because if, if I was looking at acquiring a company and I found out that the moment the deal closes, the employees are all going to cash out and quit. That would be a big concern for me. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So as Andre said, we usually recommend you just leave that discretion into the in the company's discretion. Mm -hmm. Casey, you mentioned something about uh, kind of giving different deals to different uh, different people, and I kind of thought that within a plan, the deals had to be uniform. Is that true? Well, it depends on the plan. So okay. when we, so sometimes it's called an omnibus plan. That's what public companies call it. So sometimes private companies will use that same terminology. Mm -hmm. The plan document itself really doesn't say a lot. It essentially says like you can issue options. They can be NSOs or ISOs. Uh, the award agreement itself has to specify the vesting conditions. The strike price has to be no less than fair market value go forth, right? And so then the award agreement is really where it's like the nitty gritty terms of the option award. And absolutely correct that oftentimes a company will approve a form award agreement, but sometimes that form will have alternatives in it, right? So it'll say, you know, here are the alternatives for vesting and it'll have like a, a four-year cliff, a five-year cliff. It'll have single trigger acceleration, double trigger acceleration. So the company is essentially approving options for their options. And then they delegate the ability to make those choices um, to an officer sometimes. And then you can vary it. Mm -hmm. Oh, so that's a pretty good tip then that, that um, from the company's perspective, creating a plan that gives you the ability to deliver targeted offers to people is a big advantage. If you do it right, right? So if, you are, if you're a founder or an executive who's rolling an equity plan out and you're not getting consistent awards, 
We also highly recommend that you try to put some language in there telling employees to keep the terms of their awards confidential because real quickly, if people are yeah. sitting and talking about their equity, you can get yeah. yourself in an employee relations issue. So this is one of those, like, just because you can do it, I think it's important to sit and pause and say, should I do it? Right. And then the other thing to be worried about and is it's make sure that you're being consistent with the actual strike price to our point that we discussed before, right? So if you are all of a sudden you have an employee, okay, I'll give it to you a little bit lower than I give to the other. That's going to create all sorts of issues because again, you're relying on one, one option. And the moment that you do a little bit higher for one, you're going to be able to hold on. It, which number is it that you're using to be able to yeah. stand if the RS yeah. comes out? Yeah. Don't vary strike price. Just don't. Exactly. Just don't. Stay <laughs> yeah. in your lane that's the term that you price. cannot change. <laughs> yep. Investing and all that. Yep. Yes, but you do need to vary this strike price at some point, right? In other words, you know, two years from now, the company is worth a lot more money. So don't I, don't I need to get another evaluation? Yep, absolutely. So by under the safe harbor, um, if there's no material changes that have occurred since the date of the last valuation, that valuation is deemed to be valid for a year. At which point you need to get another one. Yep. Um, but then if during that one year period, there have been any material changes that impact the value of the company, and that's kind of a loosey-goosey facts and circumstances analysis, but, you know, any big acquisitions, even any significant financings, it, then it's time to sit back and think, do I need a 409A? Because any material changes also render that existing 409A invalid, and you need to go back and get a new one. Got it. And and to that point, Brett, also, every time that a company does a financing and it's getting a board member that is actually appointed by the investors, that will be a requirement that the investors are going to put into the company and say, the moment that after we close, I want you to get a 49A because given that setting the strike price is a board decision, mm -hmm. the investors want to protect the, the their appointee to the board to make sure that that, that person is also not um, being... Uh, put in some sort of tough situation to say, okay, yeah, get yeah. the valuation report so that everyone is sort of safe. Got it. So you should get an outside 409A valuation at least once a year and more and more than that if there are material um, changes, stuff, financings. Or you're required to by contract. Yep, exactly yep. right. You got it. Yep. Cool. What is a 280G? What the hell is that? <laughs> a 280G. 280G is another really nasty section of the tax code that you don't have to deal with until an exit. I thought all of them were. <laughs> I, know. I know. I know. It's, it's, it's terrible. I don't know. <laughs> I, I chose to be a tax lawyer, right? Um, but that's a provision of the tax code, one of the, or maybe one of, one of the many, uh, that you don't deal with until there's an actual exit, a, a true change of control. And so if anyone's been through that, you might have heard, you know, we need to do a 280G analysis. So we won't go into that today. The point here is that if you do decide to accelerate or if by contract you're required to accelerate certain option vesting, the value of that acceleration is going to be taken into consideration for the 280G analysis, which might be a bad thing. So it's one of those other considerations when you're sitting back and thinking, you know, should I accelerate equity? There's sort of this checklist of things that we go through sometimes to say, maybe not. Let's think through these five things. Well, we don't have to worry about that until there's an acquisition of some sort. Yeah, but right, like we try to get ahead of those types of planning because I've had so many clients who get there and say like, oh, well, I wish I'd known that when I made this decision, even though it wasn't relevant yet. So that's definitely on the list of considerations. And then there's also a, a, there's a way that you can cure it, right, Casey, where you can get 
stockholder approval when in connection with a uh, with an acquisition to be able to sort of cleanse any penalty that people would pay. Oh, on a, Andrew's on like, a, he's going there. He's going to two on, yes. on a parachute yes. payment, right, yes. which is what people yes. are concerned. And the sensitivity here is that in order for you to get that stockholder approval so that there is no excess taxes being uh, imposed on this particular individual, he needs to be disclosed to all individuals. And you have a very high threshold of approval to be able to get it. So there's a lot of sensitivity when you have a 280G issue and you need that cleansing vote that typically managers like, wait, hold on a second. My comp, my bonus, everything that I'm getting in connection with this deal needs to be disclosed. And the answer is, if you don't want to get hit with high taxes, yes. Yeah, that's right. So Andre, just to keep going with the doom and gloom. Um, <laughs> So in your in, in your experience advising uh, high growth Silicon Valley startups, you know what are what are the you know what are the common landmines that people have stepped on that you would advise new entrepreneurs to be aware of? From from the corporate standpoint, I think it's learning how to manage and using wisely your options um, and to make sure that you're not right. I think a lot of people take for granted what their options are actually worth because, oh, the company is starting now. I have two people or three people that work with me. I'm just going to give them 5% because, mm-hmm. because right. right? And that starts becoming, I'm not saying that you shouldn't do that if you really want to incentivize those people. But you should think about, like, in the long run, what you want to do, what the market typically does, depending on the function and, and compensation that you're giving to that person in cash. And the moment that they're coming into the company, I think that's the first one. Um, the second one is, is, quite honestly, making sure that you're doing things the right way. And we haven't talked about a worst-case scenario that typically happens in a company that is way more mature, is that typically those option plans are – they're, they're – valid for about 10 years in most cases. And we have a few cases of clients that they just forgot about it. And it's been 10 years that the company has been running up and all of a sudden they're issuing options in a plan that's not valid. And that can create all sorts of other issues where there's actually no valid options being granted. And then the entrepreneur comes to you and say, well, or the CEO says, okay, let's just grant them now. And then you say, okay, but it needs to be, as we discussed, at the current fair market value. And you told that employee that he had the option, he or she had the option at a lower market value. And so how you make them whole, it needs to be a cash compensation in most cases. And then I'll be okay, but the cash is regular income. They're not going to get the benefit of paying capital gains. So sort of making sure that you're doing things correctly as you're doing them. The third thing I would say is just keep your records clean. Whenever you're doing options, if it's through Carter, right, make sure that your counsel is aware that you're doing it. Again, not trying to sell legal services in any way, shape, or form, but sometimes it takes longer to clean it up on things that can be caught very early on that the company's doing wrong, as opposed to issuing a bunch of options and then all of a sudden say, hey, here's what I did. Can you please check um, uh, to make sure that this is correct? So I think those are the three things that I'll point out as the um, as sort of not to do, if you will. Yeah. So I always talk about how, uh, so those in our audience who are engineers, software engineers in particular, know that there's a term called called technical debt, meaning that um, you know, you're running the company for a few years and you're patching code here and you're patching code there and you're just keeping stuff running. And meanwhile, the technical debt is growing, meaning all those patches that someday you got to go back and, and clean up and fix, right? It's a com- technical debt's a common term in the uh, software engineering world. The same thing with regard to uh, kind of legal and paperwork stuff that... Um, you know, everybody's got a little, 
a little stuff here and there that they've never quite finished up or they've never quite documented properly or whatever. Uh, and you really want to, you know, keep on that stuff in order to not let it accumulate to the point where suddenly you've now got a big acquisition offer on the table and you're very excited you're going to sell the company. And then you find out that there's so many unresolved legal issues that haven't quite been buttoned up or potential tax liability because something wasn't addressed. Um, you know, you don't want that to end up torpedoing your deal. <laughs> right. And moreover, especially with option when because of the issue of the strike price, which is the full benefit for the option or the award, whichever award you're using. Yeah. If you, if you, if you drop the ball, it's going to cost a lot of money yeah. for the company and for, for the person that you're trying to benefit by giving that option or yeah. award. Right, right. And Jay, Jay asked a question. It's a very common question, which is that, you know, how do I figure out, you know, how many options to give to a VP, how many options to give to a senior VP, how many options to give to a director? <laughs> I get this question a lot, and I'm never exactly sure how to answer it because there's so many variables. Do you guys have any thoughts on this? In my experience, again, it... It, it depends a little bit on on the function of that person. And also it's tied to the vesting. So if you're putting, yeah. if you're hiring a VP for a targeted mission or or sort of goal, right? You want to make sure that um, you're, you're, you're doing what your peers are doing. It also depends, I think, on the sector a little bit that you're in and what other competitors are doing because otherwise you're going to lose that VP or that C-level to a potential competitor. And also the... The, the 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 moment where the company is if it's too early stage or late stage right yeah, and yeah. It, it, it to your point Brad and sorry Jay there won't be a sort of market trend <laughs> the seniorities or levels because it, it really it it depends on on the combination of the comp package that you're giving to that person um, I think um, if you really want to try to bring someone so for example I have clients that have given CEO six percent seven percent uh, on a company that's on the A and B's and C rounds. So it, within that round, which it was someone within the industry that they needed. Uh, and on top of it, if they reached some other goals, they had some other two or 3% that would be granted later. So that is one data point, but there won't be. And then it, when it comes to directors, um, that's another one. Typically directors, if they're very early stage, they're going to ask for maybe one or 2% uh, at that point. Um, but also remember that if the company is a little bit older, right, and the directors are granting themselves equity awards, then you have the whole discussion of the fiduciary duties of doing so and be able to reward the directors at that point in time. Yeah. And the yeah, great thing stage... about like Carta and all these databases, so so many service providers, including us, we now have access to essentially databases that like comp consultants have. Or we can put in some like high level, like industry stage of the company, and then it'll spit out for you like some numbers to the extent they're instructive, who knows, but it will give you some like market data because that's really, that's really what drives the answer to Jay's question, right? Like, what do we have to give them in order to keep or recruit this person to the company? Um, and then the only other thing I'd throw in there is that this, like we've been saying, the stage of the company matters so much in terms of whether or not equity is meaningfully valuable to people, right? An early stage company, equity is going to be, a stock option is going to be extremely valuable, assuming as we all do, that that's going to be a rocket ship, right? Because it's Good. what we call an appreciation award. It's only worth money if the value of the stock appreciates meaningfully between the date you get the option and the date you sell the stock, usually in connection with a change of control. 
And so if it's a later stage company and most of the growth has already occurred and it's only going to be incremental growth from the date of grants until the date of the exit, like a stock option isn't necessarily the right answer. Sometimes employees think that it is because they want equity, but sometimes it's about sitting down with them and talking through and saying, you know, actually a change of control cash bonus might be better for you. And so that's why we think it's so important sometimes to sit back and, and ask that why question and really understand like what levers equity and the different types of equity compensation are pulling. So Susan asks a question that is very much aligned with this, um, Casey. So we haven't talked about RSUs yet. So talk about Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Um, so we talked so much about options. Susan, as I just mentioned, options are an appreciation award. So the value that the person is getting from that is the difference between the value of the stock and the date of grants and then on the date of sale, that delta. Restricted shares are what's called a full value award. You're giving someone a full set of a full share. So say I was given 10 shares and they are each worth $100 on the date they are granted to me. Those shares are subject to a vesting schedule usually, but to the extent that I vest into them, I vest into the full value. So theoretically speaking, if I vested the next day, it's not an appreciation award. I get that like it's called a full value award because you essentially are receiving the value that's been created up to the date that you've been granted it and the appreciation thereafter. That's a restricted share. An RSU is a form of what we call phantom, which is, it acts like, just like a restricted share. So you essentially get what we call, they're called restricted stock units. They are essentially placeholders for restricted shares and they look and feel a lot like settled in cash and they aren't always settled in shares. Um, and there's pros and cons to all of them um, from a tax and you know an employee motivation perspective. And the last question of the day goes to Samil, who asks about se- sales on secondary markets. You know, this is this we've seen a lot of this the last few years that because companies are taking much longer to go public than they once did, that you know people who worked at Airbnb for ten years, you know, had a bunch of equity in the company, but there was no liquidity because they hadn't had an IPO yet. And so, talk to us just a little bit briefly about secondary markets. So yeah, no, you're right. I mean, there, there there's been a trend in the of, of creation of a secondary market for options or for shares. Typically, a lot of times you have, well, first of all, every single of these awards have restrictions on them. So there's going to be typically a right of first refusal for the company to buy them if there's a third-party buyer wanting to buy them. So there are things that needs to be discussed and negotiated with the company ahead of time for that secondary market to, to be able to happen. The other thing, which is also a trend, is that sometimes in connection with an equity financing, right, for those companies, you see a lot of uh, discussions among cashing people out, being option holders, or being the actual founders that have restricted shares on them that are subject to vesting as well, to be able to give people liquidity throughout time. The other third option that I'm seeing um, at times is actually people creating, which I thought it was really creative, um, sort of investment funds which allows people to put in their restricted stock into a particular pool. And then whenever the underlying shares of everyone else starts getting sold, then you see everyone benefiting from the sale of everyone else's uh, shares that are being sold, being options or being restricted shares. But again, so those are the three most common scenarios, uh, at least in my experience that I see. Uh, But there needs to be a discussion ahead of time, especially on private companies, because all those shares are restricted in some way, shape, or form for you to be able to be able to sell them. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. And I think the answer right now is still the right of first refusal. That's how you stop this from happening with respect to your equity is that you then you have to be prepared to buy the shares, <laughs> you know, when they come to you. So it, it turns into a cash flow issue. And the, the other thing about also tying this to a, to a, a financing to get some liquidity to people that have options or, or restricted shares is because also buying shares of a privately held company is also something that has very few liquidity. So unless you're talking to an actual investor that's putting in money into the company, you're not going to find someone as you typically do on public traded companies that they just want the security to be able to sell it the next day, right? They're, they're, they're way less liquidity on those shares to be as attractive for a third party buyer that is not an actual investor that wants to invest in this particular company. Yeah. It's harder to actually do than it sounds. <laughs> So I sense Emil got the last question, but we're going to let Toby get in here with, uh, is any of this sector specific? I mean, I suspect the answer, I suspect the answer is yes, in the sense that I'm sure what's standard in biotech is probably different than what's standard in the software business. Right. And also because, for example, biotechs are companies that tend to be cash burning industry companies and mm -hmm. we need multiple finances one after the other to keep the company afloat. And mm -hmm. to the issue that we just discussed, if you're having finances, it means that your strike price is coming up every single time uh, that you're doing a financing because you have to do another valuation because you just got new cash into the company. Um, so you, if you're in a biotech company and you're working for them, you might want to be able to get as much as you want as ahead of time so that you're getting that equity at a lower price than if you wait somewhere else on a company that tends to get a growth on the valuation that takes a little bit more time, for example. There you go. All right, guys, we're going to wrap up because I promised that I would keep this under an hour. But this has been a really, really great conversation. Casey and Andre, you guys have done a good job of taking a complex and uh, confusing topic and uh, giving us some nice crisp answers. So Casey, you want to tell us a, uh, a key takeaway from this conversation? Yeah, um, it's a lot more complicated than just giving someone options. And it really is worth doing all of the planning. So asking yourself those who, when, why, where how questions and understanding why the answer you're giving is the right one will make your life as a founder or an investor or an executive so much easier in the future. Great. Andre, key takeaway? Use them wisely. <laughs> <laughs> they are worth money. Use them wisely. Yeah. Well, thanks very much to you both. This has been a, uh, a great conversation. And uh, as a reminder to our audience, thanks very much, Casey and Andre. And uh, thanks to all of you in the audience for joining us. See you soon. Thank you, Brett. Great. Thanks so much. This has been the Fourthly Podcast. If you liked what you've heard, I'd really appreciate it if you could spare a moment to share and review this show. Your support truly makes a difference. You can find out more at fourthly.com. Until next time, I'm Brett Waters. Thanks for listening.